Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take with, the adventure us. With, us. with us. With us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome everyone back to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we will be talking about the Iliad today. Please do us a big old favor and go on over to your podcast platform, leave us a rating, leave us some comments, leave us nice ratings and nice comments, that's even better, uh, so that people can find us and hear more of these really fascinating discussions that we have. So today we have, as always, guiding us on the journey of the Iliad, the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi, great to be back with you guys. So when last we left the Iliad, the Trojans had the Achaeans, the Greeks, with their backs against the proverbial wall or maybe their backs away from the proverbial Trojan walls, um, they, they, they were getting bested by the Trojans, and the Greeks were trying to get Patroclos, Achilles' friend, to go and get Achilles to join their ranks so they can turn the tide. Gary, that was Chapter 11. What right. do we have coming up in Chapter 12? Well, it's more of a bloody war. And um, as I, I keep saying this, um, early Harvard edition by uh, Lang, Leaf, and Myers, 1883, has a little, very brief synopsis of the chapters. And for chapter 12, it says, How the Trojans and Allies Broke Within the Wall of the Achaeans or the Greeks. And so that's basically what the chapter is about. Okay. That's, and, uh, so I just want to read the yeah. intro here because... Homer writes about it in his grand way, and I just want to repeat that Homer originated the epic story uh, format and presentation like no other, and uh, and so he, he became the the model, you know, that uh, all these other later poets and so on uh, followed, you know, well, the Homeric, to give, uh, format. To give the epic setting for our listener right now, um, you may hear in the background every once in a while these sounds of summer. We are in beautiful Southern California, and we are letting it go au natural for our audio. So if you hear motorcycles, you know, vrooming by or children in the background, that's just the sound of the world around. So, Gary, back to the sound of the ancient world. Okay, so anyhow, the... Uh, the edition I keep reading from is um, this 1990 uh, translation of the Iliad by Robert Fagels. And his title for the chapter is The Trojans Storm the Rampart, meaning the, this is a wall that the Greeks built uh, near their ships to protect their ships from the Trojan attack. And it had guard towers on it and had a big gate and all that sort of thing. And it's made out of wood, not stone like the walls of Troy. And so this is how Homer, uh, you know, uh, introduces it. Um, 
but hordes of men fought on, and the Achaean or the Greeks and the Trojan infantry going hand to hand. The Greek trench could not hold out much longer, nor could the rampart rearing overhead. The wide wall they raised to defend the ships and the broad trench they drove all around it. <clears throat> they excavated a, a trench around it <clears throat> excuse me, to keep the chariots from driving right up to the wall. Or maybe a siege engine, who knows, you know. So um, uh, they, uh, they, a broad trench they drove all, all around. They never gave the gods a splendid sacrifice the immortals craved. So what they're, what Homer is saying is they didn't properly dedicate the wall to the gods, and therefore, you know, that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. And that the fortress might protect the fast ships of the Greeks and all the plunder they heaped behind its shield. Defying the deathless gods, they built that wall, and so it stood there steadfast no long time. While Hector still lived and Achilles raged on and the warlord prime citadel went unstormed, so long the Achaeans' ramparts stood erect. So the chapter goes on to talk about how the how the Trojans uh, attacked the walls, you know? Okay, let me ask you something about uh, one of the characters because it's uh, interesting. The way Homer describes Priam in what you just read was the warlord Priam, and it gives you a, a, a certain image of him, which you and I uh, talked about Troy, the film from 2004, I believe it was, um, and we talked about how much we liked Sir uh, Peter O'Toole's version of him. He played Priam. Was the way O'Toole played him was a very kindly, caring, gentle ruler. How does Homer do? How does Homer treat Priam? I think he basically treats him that way because um, there's a very touching scene where um, he and Helen of Troy are looking at the uh, Greeks advancing on Troy. And uh, I forget what chapter it's in. Um, and Helen uh, expresses how sorry she is that she brought this onslaught onto Troy. And uh, King Prime very kindly says um, that she is not the cause of this war. And he says that the gods are to blame, you know. It's an version. We had talked about that in just uh, in terms of the depiction of Helen, and so it's in an earlier chapter. So yes, absolutely. So he, so, he shows real compassion uh, to Helen, and uh, I, I think it shows he was kindly and and uh, you know he could have rejected her when when uh, Paris first brought her to Troy, but he didn't do it. So when he says warlord, I guess for us modern listeners and readers, it conjures up a particular image, but really he's talking about someone that was his station, that was his status, his rank. Yeah, he was the leader so, of, of yeah. Troy who would defend their uh, territory with, uh, you know, with their army um, as needed. But uh, I, I just don't view him as a conquering kind of warlord like I do Agamemnon, uh, you know, the, the leader of the Greeks. Yeah, they definitely are conveyed, they're, they're characterized differently. Uh, and they certainly were in the film, one of the few things that, you know, you and I both agree that film missed a lot of points, but it really did get that those particular characterizations right. So, okay, so now we're at 12, 
we're, it's, we're about to have some bloody battles at the wall. Just spell, you know, describe it, spell it out for us. Tell us what happens. Yeah. So, um, um, and then he talks about uh, Prime's high walls were stormed in the 10th year. Now, that's interesting. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I, I keep mentioning it. I think I discovered a sacred symbolic number system in the Iliad. And Homer keeps emphasizing the 10th year. And I think that's one of the sacred numbers. Just like in his Odyssey, he has Odysseus taking 10 years to get home. But his encounter with all these, you know, gods, goddesses, and monsters and so on takes him 10 years. So 10 and 10, you know. You know, and in that time frame, 20 years is a big chunk of a person's life. Most people didn't live very long no. back then, particularly if you were a fighter or warrior. Of course, Odysseus gets through. But, yeah, 20 years out of his life is a long stretch. So basically what Homer is saying, they're in the 10th year, and it says that last Poseidon, you know, the god of the sea and Lord Apollo, um, Launched their plan. Now, see, Poseidon and Apollo uh, favored the Trojans. So they launched their plan to smash the rampart. And so they they uh, directed rivers to attack it. I mean, you mentioned the Simwa and the Scamander rivers. They actually diverted them to attack the wall, which is hard to believe, but, I mean, that's what he's saying here. Um, he said Apollo swung them around. Nine days, nine is another sacred number, by the way, um, hurled the flood against the wall, and Zeus came raining down, cloudbursts, powering cloudbursts, and so on. The earth shaker, meaning Poseidon himself, and of course, we just had a terrible earth shaking in uh, Haiti, if you, if you watch the news. Mm-hmm. 7.2 uh, earthquake had killed uh, hundreds of people, unfortunately. It's sad. The Greeks would say that was caused by Poseidon. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentions the trident. Earthshaker himself, trident locked in his grip. Now, the trident was the three-pointed spear. Interestingly, three points, number three is also sacred. And I think it's no uh, no mistake it has three points. Mm-hmm. You know, led the way. Maybe a reference to earlier uh, ideas, manifestations of triple goddess, or as in the case with the Greeks, they make them triple gods. In many so then he respects. turns to right. the, I mean the the three the three yes. So then he turns to the Greeks. He says, "Pinned to their beak ships, in dread of Hector, the invincible headlong terror, meaning Hector. On he fought, meaning Hector. On he fought like a whirlwind, like some lion or wild boar, uh, rippling in strength." So Homer has all these descriptors in there, which are indelible you know and it just really gives you some idea of uh you know the attitude and uh strength of, of these heroes and then he goes on so hector lunged into battle rallying his forces now spraying them on to cross the gaping trench now hector's in his chariot and he's trying to jump the the trench but his horses won't do it he says homer says his rearing stallions lacked the nerve. They balked, winning shrill at the edge, at the brink of the dead stop, and so on. And then he describes the trench itself, which makes sense. He says, the trench had steep banks, um, its whole length, jutting up on either side, topped by a stabbing row of stakes. 
So I had sharp stakes within it to kill anybody that might fall inside, you see, mm -hmm. or, you know, man or horse. And then it says, the so, horse's fear, right? Okay. Yeah. So I said, so Polydamus is a Trojan, stood by headstrong Hector, warning Hector and all our Trojan captains, allies in arms. It's madness to drive our teams, meaning the chariots across the trench, impossible to traverse it and so on. So Homer kind of goes on and on about that. But, um, you know, obviously a horse can't cross a trench with, with stakes and so on, you know. So he's telling Hector, he says, so come, do as I stay, do as I say, um, arm for assault on foot. So they have to do it on foot. Mm -hmm. And so, so Polydamus, Polydamus, however you pronounce his name, urged and his plan won Hector over. They all dismounted. And then it says that uh, Hector, uh, you know, marshaled his troops into five battalions. Now, interestingly, five is half of 10. So apparently, you know, half of these sacred numbers are still important. So he talks about uh, uh, the men who trooped with Hector and Prince Polydamus mm -hmm. were the greatest force, the best and bravest. Cabriones followed and closed, third in command, again, the number three, and uh, so on. In the second Trojan battalion, uh, Paris led in arms, and Hellenus led the third. So there, so Paris was involved. He wasn't totally a, a coward. Okay, and so we had talked earlier about the questioning uh, Paris's uh, bravery. You know, we you had described him in many earlier segments as being this kind of a you know big, tough-looking guy who really would shrink from the fight, uh, or so it seemed in the Iliad. Well, we do see indications of yeah. finding Menelaus. You know, when Menelaus came on them. Well, I mean, to be fair, I mean, he did fight. I mean, he did go yeah, he into did it. Fight. He just was getting. He was just didn't. You know, it was he, he got, was getting. He just yeah. got uh, cold feet in that particular um, instance. Yeah, cold feet. He fought, and then Aphrodite, right, and just yeah, grabs Aphrodite him out and nabs him from there. So. Took him away in a mist and put him in the bedroom with Helen. You know, because yeah, he was about to be put out, have his lights put out. And then so. Helen berated him for not staying in the battlefield. You know. Yeah, which I feel like he gets kind of a little bit of a raw deal with that. Like he didn't leave the battlefield. Aphrodite took him from there, but you know, yeah, that's a that good point. Good point. You know? So, um, so okay. So he shows, yeah, he's ready to throw throw himself into the ring. So okay, great. So we've got and then, Paris uh, out there. And then, and then Homer goes on. He says the fourth battalion was led by the gallant Aeneas. Let's Prince give of, him a. Let's give him a. And why do we give him a big round of applause, folks? We do that because he goes on to become the founder of the greatest empire the world has ever known, Rome. Well, according to the myth of... <laughs> um, myth what of the, myth? What myth, Gary? We know it's true. No, no, so, we don't. I mean, okay. We know it's true that the ancient Romans were not related to the Trojans. We know Actually, that. no, no, that one, we're, you and I are going to disagree. We're going to have a, we're gonna do an episode on that because that jury is still out. Yes, there was a lot of... There have been uh, particular genetic studies that are that quite call it into question, but um, 
It's an interesting one. Let's do an episode on that. Actually, it could be a very okay. interesting. All one. right. Okay. All right. Tell you what, so, so the great Roman, the great Roman founder Aeneas. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so anyhow, he he's leading part of the attack. You know, um, and um, uh, so then they 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 go to the gates of the um, of the Greek uh, wall. And, uh, and he talks about, you know, they're at the gates and, and uh, there's a, a, a Trojan who's a match for murderous Ares. Both warriors planted there before the towering gates like oak, oak trees that reared a crest on a mountain ridge. You know, Homer makes another allusion. Um, and then there's a, a contingent of the Trojan troops called the Lapis, L-A-P-I-T-H-S. Mm-hmm. And they close in a ring, and they, do, you know, uh, th- this is, uh, excuse me, they're not Trojans, they're Greeks. They close in a ring to defend the ships. Mm-hmm. And then it says the Lapis saw the Trojans storming the wall, like wild boars and so on. And so the Lapis and other, other Greeks defend themselves uh, in their fast ships. They they uh, threw rocks and they pelted the ground like snow. So they're, they're throwing rocks at at the attacking Trojans, and some of them they say are, are were boulders as big as millstones, which maybe is the case. I don't know, but I think I mentioned this before. But it is fascinating to think about what warfare meant in this era. I mean, you're talking about sticks and stones literally breaking your bones. It's it's guys. Hand-to-hand combat using the the most brutal and I won't say primitive, but brutal and basic instruments they can to destroy each other. Rocks, stones, sharpened spears, you know, just very basic stuff. And it's bloody and it's hand-to-hand and it's face-to-face. And it's, it's you know, war is brutal now. It's a different kind of brutality then. And, and Homer it's, good, says, it's good to remember you know, us. Remember that, I should say. And Homer says that both sides were brave, you know, because it was everything to be brave and honorable. Mm-hmm. And, um, but uh, anyhow, you know, uh, they're not, you know, they're not like modern times where, unfortunately, in Afghanistan, after we've trained 300,000 um, troops, like, you know, President Biden has said, they're not. Um, they're, they're not uh, defending, uh, you know, the, the good people of Afghanistan. They're just surrendering to the Taliban, you know, without yeah, a fight. That's a, that's a whole episode in and of itself. It's a different world. What's interesting about Afghanistan, just to keep it in the, the classical realm, is that its connection to this classical era, with the actual classical era, not this era we're in now, but later, of course, when you have Alexander going through that region. Um, and having it influenced by Greek culture. So, you know, these we the things we see in the modern world, we're replaying sometimes episodes from millennia ago. You know, Afghanistan being a perfect example of it. But anyway, yeah. back to back to Troy. So anyhow, Homer says that um, <clears throat> the Greeks, he compares them to wasps. He said, like wasps, quick and pinch at the waist, or beads that build their hives on a rocky path. They never give up their hollow house, so they held on, defending the wall, you see. 
and um and 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 then um they some of them were appealing to Zeus and it says uh but their their wailing failed to move the heart of Zeus. It was Zeus's pleasure to hand the prize to Hector. So Zeus wanted uh, Hector to win this round, you know. Mm-hmm. Once again, our gods like um, like crowds, like uh, fans at a ball game. That's what they seem like. And then also you have Zeus, who's both a fan and the commissioner of the league and the referee. So he kind of puts his thumb on the scale for how he wants things to go. Uh, so it's interesting, again, the, the way Homer describes the gods. I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. Yeah. They're just voyeurism. They're, they are, and they're fickle, and they change sides and change their minds readily, and, you know, they're not consistent at all. That's it's So, really so Homer goes on, he says, Now squad on squad, gate to gate they fought. And it's interesting how he expresses this. He says, But how can I tell it all? Sing it all like a god? I think that's interesting. Uh, part there. Um, the strain is far too great. Everywhere around the wall, the surging inhuman blaze of war leapt up the rocks. The, the Greeks, desperate, had no choice. They struggled now to defend the ships and so on. And then he talks about some of the you know, bloody uh, results. And there, Pirithous's son, the rugged Polypoetes, Skewered Damascus, not Damascus, but Damascus, pierced his bronze-sided helmet, again emphasizing bronze. None of the bronze plate could hold it. He bored through the metal and skull. The brazen spear point pounded. Damascus's brain scattered all inside his helmet. You know, just really grim stuff. My goodness, yeah. What an incredible description. Okay, so uh, so where, where, so... Well, you know, it it goes on and it changes here uh, because Mm -hmm. the uh, Trojans are attacking and it says uh, Polydamus and Hector, the greatest force, the best and bravest, grim set to breach the wall and torch the ships. Um, And then suddenly, as the men tried to cross, a fatal bird sign flashed before their eyes. An eagle flying high on the left across their front and clutching a monstrous bloody serpent in its talons. So, and that was a signal that they weren't going to succeed that day. They were not. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and he goes on to say, the Trojans shuddered to see the serpent glistening, wriggling in the feet of, of the bird, a sign from storming Zeus. And Polydamus stood by headstrong Hector saying, Hector, you always seemed to attack me and blah, 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 stop the attack. Don't fight them at their ships. All will end as the omen says, I do believe. If the bird sign really came to us, the Trojans, just as our fighters tried to cross the trench, that eagle flying high on the left across our front. In other words, it's signaling that they're just not going to succeed that day. So then helmet, uh, Hector agrees. He says his helmet, you know, Homer keeps talking about the bright helmet of uh, Hector, and he says, "The bright his bright helmet flashing." Hector wheeled in a dark glance. Enough, Polydamus, your pleading repels me now. And so on. Um, 
And so is that how is that how well, we he's, wrap got, up? he's trying to reject the uh, sign of the bird. He said, "Bird signs fly for your country. That's the best, the only omen." Shouting, Hector led the charge, and his army swarmed behind the blood-chilling cries. And above their onset, Zeus, who loves the lightning, launched from Ida's summits a sudden howling gale that whipped a dust storm hard against the ships and so on. Um, so, anyhow. Okay. So, we, so, in spite of the omen, they pushed through, led by Hector, and the storm rises. Where do where do we end? How does how does the chapter how does where does Homer take us in the chapter with this? Well, then the the Greeks uh, interpret it that uh, and they say uh, Olympian Zeus, the Lord of Lighting, grants his strength to repel this Trojan charge, and so on. That uh, would carve a passage through Troy's high walls. But there's actually. Um, so the Greeks are lifted by it. The Greeks see the same omen and they interpret it. Uh, they interpret it the same way, and its effect is the reverse. Right. right. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Okay. And then, so but the Greeks, uh, Hector mm -hmm. actually picks up a huge stone and uh, hurls it at the gate and actually breaks open the gate. But even that is 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 not enough. You know. It's just again the brute force. It's just Man and the elements. So, and so you know the the two Ajaxes show up to defend the gate, uh, little Ajax and great Ajax, and then this uh, so-called master archer, master shooter of the bow and arrow, Toyser, arrives, and um, and then you know they 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 defeat, uh, you know they start defeating the Trojans, and then they force them back, you know. Okay, so to, uh, so this chapter is a turning of tides, so to speak. Yeah, it just ends with Hector hurled at the gates, full center, smashing the hinges left and right, and the boulder tore through, dropped with a crash, and both gates groaned and thundered. The door bars could not hold. The planking shattered up, and the flying storm of splinters under the rock's force. Hector burst through in glory, his face dark, and sudden rushing night, but he blazed on in bronze. No one could fight him, stop him, none but the gods, as Hector hurled through the gates, his eyes flashing fire and whirling round, he cried to the Trojans, the wall, storm the wall, they rushed to obey him. And so, um, contrary to what I just said. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, so it's actually, it's, so that it's so really in other words, switched uh, back. Okay. The, the Trojans rushed to obey him, some swarming over the top of ones, others streaming in through the sturdy gateways. The Greeks scattering back in terror back to the hollow holes of their ships. So the next chapter will be about uh, Hector trying to burn the ships. So just to sum up this so chapter. I, I, I just want to admit I, I was wrong earlier in the in the podcast here where I said that uh, they, they drove the Trojans back. No, they didn't. And uh, and now Hector broke through the gates and they're storming onto the ships. So in spite of the omen, Hector pushed through and was finding some success, at least by this point. It's like the line in Julius Caesar, the fault of Brutus lies not in our stars, but in ourselves, for we are the underlings. So he goes against the, the omen or the sign and just goes with his own will. Yes, and 
what the what the Greeks want to do is burn the ships. I mean, excuse me. What the Trojans want to do is burn the ships of the Greeks, so they 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 won't have any escape, and that hopefully the Trojans can kill them all. That that's the hope here. Okay. So with that, we will leave us with that image, that cliffhanger of the Trojans going for it, going to wipe out the Greeks. What will happen? You'll have to tune in on the next episode to find out. But first, I'd like to thank our guy, Dr. Gary Stickle. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. This is the 34 Circe Salon, The Parallax. We have been exploring the Iliad, Chapter 12, on our Classical Studies 101. Thank you for listening, and tune in again very soon. Take care.